1: It's in the Scottish government's interest not just to protect, obviously, public services, but also to show further divergence from the rest of the UK.
0: It does show the sort of strain that the market is under this winter. The other factor playing into all this is Brexit. Neither political party will even contemplate relaxing EU migration. This is the elephant in the room, isn't it? You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Lizzie Burden. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Caroline Hepker.
2: Welcome to today's programme. We're going to go live to Prime Minister's questions in just a moment. Keir Starmer perhaps has a pick of problems to throw at Rishi Sunak in the next few minutes. The shock jump in inflation, how the Metropolitan Police moves forward after the Casey report, but also the disgrace of Boris Johnson.
1: But first, let's talk about that inflation problem. Economists were expecting the latest annual CPI reading to drop into single digits, but CPI rose to 10.4% in the year to February. Lizzie, what's driving up prices? There is a bit of an a, a extra special case this month, isn't there? But, but we've got a problem.
0: Yeah, it's your favourite things, Ewan. It's <laughs> booze and food. Everybody's <laughs> been drinking up after dry January. But it was meant to be the month when inflation fell back to single digits. That's what economists were expecting. So this really makes the Bank of England's life easier ahead of tomorrow's decision, you might say, because there were some who were wondering whether all the bank stress around Credit Suisse and Silicon Bank Valley UK meant that no hike was needed. This should uh, quieten them. But it's also a blow to Rishi Sunak, of course, because his top priority is cutting inflation.
2: Yeah, absolutely. We're still in double digits. I mean, it's an easy decision for the Bank of England, but everybody else is going to feel the pain, right? Rising interest rates, 25 basis points, another rate rise. I mean, one of the strategists at ING this morning calling this inflation uh, an ugly report. So I think perhaps there's... There's something for Keir Starmer, the opposition leader, to, to say about that, the cost of a living.
1: Mm, for sure. But, uh, of course, Rishi Sunak's target is pretty easy to hit, isn't it? I don't think many people don't think he's going to hit 5% by the end of the year, uh, where 2.9% is the OBR's uh, forecast for the end of the year. A lot of economists think it will be in the region of 3 to 4%. But, yeah, it is still one of the worst inflation rates in Europe, though, isn't it? it, is, it is. We are not doing well on the inflation front.
0: No, economists expect us to get there by the end of the year to see inflation halving as is Sunak's target. But the headlines do not look good, especially when we heard from the Chancellor Jeremy Hunt yesterday saying that no, inflation won't just come down by itself. We need to do stuff as government.
1: Here's Keir Starmer.
3: We remember the innocent lives lost six years ago in a terror attack on Westminster Bridge. Amongst those tragically killed was PC Keith Palmer, who sacrificed his life to protect others. Police officers up and down the country work tirelessly every day to keep us safe, and we thank them for that. But as we saw this week, those brave officers are being let down. Dame Louise Casey found institutional homophobia, misogyny and racism in the Metropolitan Police. I accept those findings in full. Does the Prime Minister?
4: Well,
5: Mr. Mr. Speaker, I join with the uh, Honourable Gentleman paying tribute to PC Palmer and indeed all the other police officers um, who have lost their lives serving and those who do so much to keep us safe. Uh, I was appalled, Mr. Speaker, to read the descriptions of the abhorrent cases of officers who have betrayed the public's trust and abused their powers. And let me be clear. It is and was unacceptable and should never have happened. We have taken a series of steps already, and the Government will also now work with the Mayor and the Metropolitan Commissioner to ensure that culture, standards and behaviour all improve. At the heart of this matter are the people whose lives have been ruined by what has happened, (laughs) and I know the whole House will agree with me that it is imperative that the Met works hard. To regain the trust of the people it is privileged to
3: serve. I take it from that answer that the Prime Minister does accept the Casey findings in full, including the institutional failures. Because nobody reading the Casey report can be left in any doubt about how serious this is, and doubt for a second that it's restricted to the Met. The report lays bare how those unfit to join the police are aided by patchwork vetting systems that leave the door open. If the Government backed Labour's plan for proper, mandatory national vetting, we could end the farce that sees different police recruitment standards in different forces. Will he back that plan so we can make speedy progress?
5: Mr. Mr. Speaker, there's no need to back that pan because we're already taking action to tackle the issues that are raised in the Casey report. And it was actually two months ago, it was two months ago that I met with Dame Louise Casey and the Metropolitan Commissioner, and we introduced a series of measures. For instance, the College of Policing is currently updating the statutory code of practice for police officer vetting that all forces legally have to follow. All police forces are in the process of checking their officers against the police national database and, in weeks, Her Majesty's independent inspectorate will report back on their re-inspection of all forces vetting procedures. Now, these steps, of course, won't undo the terrible damage that have been previously committed, but we owe this action and more to the victims and survivors to ensure that such tragedies never happen
6: again.
3: Yes, yeah, Starbuck. Yeah, yeah. Well, the problem with the Prime Minister's answer is what he's referring to isn't mandatory. How can it possibly be right to have different standards for recruitment in different police forces? No wonder the Casey report criticised what she calls the government's hands-off attitude to policing over the last 13 years. But let's call it what it really is, sheer negligence. The report also exposes chronic failures by the police to deal with rape cases, with officers using, and I quote, overstuffed or broken fridges containing the rape kits of victims. On his watch, rape charges are 1.6%. Yet the government still hasn't backed Labour's plan to have proper, high-quality rape and serious sexual offences units in every police force. Why not? Prime Minister. Mr Speaker, what,
5: what Louise Casey also says is that primary public accountability of the Met sits with the Mayor of London. She described that relationship between the Mayor and the Met as, in her words, dysfunctional. But when it comes. So I I hope when he stands up, he will also confirm to the House that he will take up these matters with the Labour Mayor of London so that he plays his part. But, But, Mr. Speaker, the way rape victims were treated by the criminal justice system wasn't good enough, and that's why the government published an ambitious Rape Review Action Plan. It is right that we have extended Operation Sawteria across all police forces in the country, we have tripled the number of independent sexual violence advisers, we have improved the process of collecting phone evidence and being cross-examined, and, since 2010, we have quadrupled funding for victim support services. That is a Conservative Government doing everything we can to support victims and tackle
3: predators. People are fed up to the back teeth with a government that never takes responsibility and just tries to blame everyone. They they can shout if they're proud. If they're proud of the fact that over 98% of rapists are never put before, if they want to shout about that, that's their record. Let them shout about it. Should be ashamed of yourself. The truth is simple. After 13 years of Tory government, crime is out of control and people are paying the price. Before Christmas, the BBC reported the shocking case of a woman in Armthorpe who had been beaten with a baseball bat by burglars three years ago. Nobody had been charged with that burglary, and she could not sleep at night. Under their watch, tragically, that is not an unusual case. So can the Prime Minister tell us what is the charge rate for theft and burglary across the country? Minister. Well, Mr Mr Speaker, actually since
5: twenty nineteen neighbourhood crime is down by twenty-five per cent. But he he asked he asked, he asked uh, rightly about what's happening with rape cases. So let me just let me just tell him that we are on track to meet our target of doubling the number of rape cases that are reaching our courts. Since, since the Rape Review Action Plan was published, we've seen police referrals double. We've seen charges double and last year there was a 65% increase in rape convictions. But importantly, we also changed the law to ensure that rapists would spend more time in prison. But what did his shadow policing police his shadow policing minister say? Prison doesn't prevent crime. It tells you everything that you need to know about the Labour Party. You can't trust them to keep Britain safe.
3: Mr. Speaker, the Prime Minister stands there and pretends that everything's fine. He is so totally out of touch. He needs needs to get out of Westminster, get out of Kensington. And, and Mr. Speaker, I don't mean.
4: It's a big day today in the House, and it's a very important day. We do want to make progress. Holding us up is not advantageous to any of us.
3: Mr. Speaker, he needs to get out of Westminster, get out of Kensington, and I don't mean to Malibu, to the streets of Britain, go there and tell people it's all fine and see what reaction he gets. The answer he didn't want to give, although he knows it, is 4% of cases. 4% of burglary charges are charged. 96% of theft and burglary cases not even going before the courts. Burglars twice as likely to get away with it now as they were a decade ago. They should be ashamed of that record. And that cul-de-sac in Armforth has apparently seen 10 burglaries in 18 months, but only one of them has resulted in a prosecution. So, rather than boasting and blaming others, why doesn't he tell the country when he's going to get the theft and burglary charge rate back to where it was before they wrecked policing?
5: Prime Minister. Mr. Speaker, first of all, let me say North Yorkshire is a lot further away than North London.
1: I,
4: I'd like the lines as well, but I prefer to hear them rather than the jeering. Come on, <laughs> Prime Minister. Well, Mr. <laughs> no then, we are going to make progress. <laughs> Mr. Shelbrook will be buying the teas in the tea room if we're not careful. Come on, Prime Minister. And.
5: And. And. They'll be Yorkshire teas, Mr. Yeah! Speaker. Mr. Speaker, since the Conservatives came into power, crime is down 50%, Mr. Speaker. Violent crime down 40%. Burglary, the Honourable Gentleman mentioned burglary. Burglary down 56%. Why? Because we've recruited 20,000 more police officers. We've given them the powers to tackle crime and we've kept serious offenders in prison for longer. All they've done is vote against. Greater protections for emergency workers. They've opposed tougher sentences for violent criminals. And they are failing to give the police the powers that they need. It's the same old Labour soft on crime, soft on criminals.
4: Yeah!
3: The only criminal investigation he's ever been involved in is the one that found him guilty of breaking the law. I've prosecuted countless rapists. The Prime Minister. I, I want
4: office. I am determined to hear the questions, whether it's the leader of the opposition, or the Prime Minister. You so I can. S- you you. Sorry. I think you'll be, I think you've got your first customer for tea, Mr. Kurtz. We keep having this little problem. We'll have no more. No, then. Just a moment. So please, let's get through,
3: and let's just show some respect to both people at these boxes. Kistama. Thank you, Mr Speaker. I've prosecuted countless rapists and I support tougher sentences. But you have to catch the criminals first. And when ninety eight per cent of rapists are not even being put before the court, that's a massive failure on government. And if he wants to go to Armthorpe, which is in Yorkshire, why doesn't he go to that cul-de-sac when he gets out and about in Yorkshire and, and, and ask them about those ten burglaries that haven't been prosecuted? The reality is After 13 years of Tory government, they've done nothing on standards, neighbourhood policing has been shattered, and burglars and rapists walk the streets with impunity. It's the same every week from the Prime Minister, whether it's the cost of living crisis, crime running out of control, or the state of the NHS. Why is his answer always to tell this British people they've never had it so good? Prime Minister. Mr. Speaker, let me just
5: address the issue the Honourable Gentleman raised, because I said at the time I respected the decision the police reached and I offered an unreserved apology. But for the avoidance of doubt, Mr. Speaker, at the moment that that happened, there was a full investigation by a very senior civil servant. Ah. The findings of which which confirmed that I had no advance knowledge about what had been planned, having arrived early for a meeting. But he he doesn't need me to tell him that. He's probably spoken to the report's author much more frequently than I have.
2: Okay, so that was uh, Rishi Sunak then ending, I think, what was um, a very difficult and quite heated conversation around crime. In fact, it dominated the whole of Prime Minister's questions after the ferocious criticism of the Metropolitan Police by Baroness Casey, Louise uh, Casey. a back and forth about Sunak saying that the government is changing cultural standards and behaviours, that they are taking action already to try to increase rape cases. But then of course the former director of public prosecutions, the leader of uh, the Labour Party, Keir Starmer, saying I've prosecuted countless rapists. So sort of trying to Um, say that the Conservatives were simply not tough on crime enough.
1: Yeah, it it actually started off as quite a civilised discussion, didn't it? The first couple of answers uh, both sides were trying to be serious about this very serious issue and then it rather degenerated into uh, the usual kind of uh, slanging mash. Um, uh, Sunak trying to accuse Labour of being soft on crime, uh, soft on criminals, uh, saying that crime is down over the 13 years of the Conservative government, Um, but Starmer saying that uh, crime is out of control and giving a couple of examples of, of some some nasty burglaries. Uh, yeah, so um a, a pretty robust.
0: Look, being this is used. something that really cuts through. I'm not surprised that Starmer's chosen to leave Northern Ireland, leave inflation today. This is him trying to position as taking something that is traditionally the Tory uh <laughs> The the bread and butter for the Conservative Party. Yes, of course. This is their mainstay policy. Yeah, and usually the Conservatives are the party of economic responsibility as well. But look what happened with Liz Truss. That was uh, undermined and now they're having to rehabilitate there too. But I do wonder, um, really, how much that soft on crime, soft on criminals line from Rishi Sunak could possibly get through. When Starmer's pointing out you've got burglars and rapists walking the streets with impunity, people feel that.
2: Yeah, I think it's a hugely emotive issue. I think the language in Casey's report around the Metropolitan um, Police and all of the response to it has been tremendous. So I think it's not surprising that pretty much every question in PMQs was related to that. Yeah,
1: of course, this is straight out of the Blair playbook, of course, because Blair tried to move his tanks onto Tory ground, tackling uh, crime, saying we must be tough on crime and tough on the causes of crime. And it does feel like Starmer is uh, really trying to do the same thing.
2: Mm. Okay, so Prime Minister's Questions is done. And in fact not a word on Boris Johnson Mm. who of course today faces a televised grilling by the Privileges Committee over Partygate there were only hints of this issue in Prime Minister's questions the central issue did Boris Johnson mislead the House of Commons about parties in Downing Street during the pandemic
1: well if the committee fine against him then there are various sanctions they can impose from a written apology to docking of salary or to the suspension from the Commons for a period of time and if that period of time is 10 days or more, then there could be a recall petition and that would be tricky for Boris Johnson. Well, we spoke to the former Conservative Attorney General Dominic Grieve, who had the Conservative whip removed along with many others uh, by Boris Johnson in 2019 over that Brexit deal.
2: So I began by asking Grieve uh, why, after all of the discussion the issues around Boris Johnson that to many voters seems quite obvious that the rules were broken during lockdown, that Johnson was not open and honest about that, and that there have been no consequences. Why is that?
6: The system undoubtedly works slowly, and I suppose on the basis of your comments, Mr Johnson should have simply admitted that he'd lied to the House of Commons a long time ago and faced the consequences. But I don't think Mr Johnson's the sort of person who wishes to face the consequences of his own actions. He has a long-standing reputation for telling lies, but generally speaking, uh, he's been able to get away with it. But misleading the House of Commons has always been a very serious issue, although it's right to say that others have done it in the past and have got away with it. But because it concerned uh, uh, lies, alleged lies, about his behaviour during lockdown uh, in Number 10, uh, it's clearly hit an area of public concern and public anger. And that's why the Commons ultimately has responded and the Privileges Committee is investigating it, but it has gone very slowly. And I have very little doubt from some of the uh, information we're being given that Mr Johnson has helped it go very slowly uh, because he's responded very slowly indeed to requests for submitting his own evidence.
1: Dominic, it's a long process, isn't it? But do you think there's any chance of him at the end of all of this losing his seat if we get to a by-election?
6: I would have thought that if there were to be a by-election in Uxbridge because he was suspended from the service of the House for 30 days and there was a recall petition, I would have thought the chances of his losing the seat were very high. It's never been an ultra-safe Conservative seat. Uh, And public opinion, it's a seat which adjoins the one I represented Public opinion about Johnson changed very markedly in that area uh, in the 20 months after he became prime minister. So I have it's impossible to tell what the uh, the citizens of uh, Uxbridge would decide.
1: Will MPs ways, go that far though?
6: It seems to me it depends on their findings. If they find that he deliberately misled. Uh, or recklessly indeed misled Parliament by saying that there was all the guidance and all the rules had been followed in number 10, whereas in fact they weren't, then it's going to be difficult for the committee not to recommend his suspension for a period of at least 10 days from the service of the House. And it's that suspension which triggers the possibility of a recall petition if a sufficient number of constituents Mm. ask for it, and in which case, there is a by-election. The seat is vacated, there's a by-election. Okay. And Mr Johnson can stand again.
2: So so, disapp- so difficult to avoid if that is the point that we get to. Do you think that he misled Parliament? Do you think that there is anything in the claim that Sue Gray, the Inquiry, are biased against Mr Johnson?
6: I think a lot of uh, the things that have been said are complete bluster and they're irrelevant. Uh, there's nothing to indicate that Sue Gray was biased against him. In any case, she didn't make any findings against him. She made findings of facts about what went on at number 10 Downing Street. And as far as I can understand from Mr Johnson's defense, he now accepts that those findings of fact were correct. His defense is that at the time he made the statements to the House of Commons, and he made several over a number, over a period of time, that he uh, was acting in good faith and genuinely believed that these parties, the gatherings that were taking place, were work gatherings and were not parties. The difficulty he has is that he personally attended some of them. So he's not relying on what somebody else has told him about what was going on. He could witness them with his own eyes. He participated in them. And there are photographs which have been widely circulated showing what sort of event was taking place. So... On the face of it, he does have some explaining to do as to why he considered that those events which the public have now had an opportunity of looking at, the bottles of champagne and beer on the table, for example, and the sandwiches and the canapes and everything else, how those were not parties rather than work events, particularly in view of the regulation and guidance the government had itself put out.
0: When we step back from all this... Who did more damage to the Conservative Party, Liz Truss or Boris Johnson?
6: I think that's an impossible question to uh, answer. Uh, They are, in any case, uh, of a rather different quality. Liz Truss was Prime Minister for a very short period of time, uh, during which there's no doubt that the economic policy she decided to follow was catastrophic. And it was, in some ways, a logical outcome of the over-optimism that Johnsonism had introduced into the Conservative Party post-Brexit. But Mr Johnson is the great architect of Brexit. Probably the referendum would not have been won in 2016 without his intervention and without the way he behaved uh, in 2019. Brexit might not have been accomplished in the way it has. But three years down the track, there are a lot of people looking at the achievement of Brexit and saying it's not an achievement at all. It's a disaster. But leaving that to one side, the key disaster with Mr. Johnson is that he showed himself throughout his time in office to be a completely unreliable individual who messed up our international relations because most of our international partners would hardly do business with him because they regarded him as so unreliable and who was exposed on many, many things, leaving the party gate issue to one side, as being a serial pathological liar.
0: But in the Somebody court of who went confronted opinion, by any
6: difficult fact immediately invents an answer.
0: But in the court of public opinion, doesn't charm and charisma actually trump effective government and office and ethics?
6: Well, it may do. And indeed, there's plenty of uh, his- historical evidence that charmers can get away with a great deal. And Mr Johnson undoubtedly has extraordinary political skills. But the problem is he applies those political skills to uh, bad ends. And the consequence is to undermine faith in democratic institutions and to lead people to conclude that all politicians are liars and corrupt. Now, that's a very bad place to be in a democracy. And Mm. he is he has been instrumental in creating that climate. And that's what I hold against him more than any uh, other thing. You can have policy disagreements between but, reasonable people, but the behaviour in a democracy—if you're going to sustain a parliamentary democracy—you yes. have to have ethical standards.
2: Okay, but Dominic, you were a—you con- are a conservative, were a conservative for 20 years representing Beaconsfield. It is a true blue constituency. Yes, you resigned over—or or lost the whip over the Brexit votes, but. Why is it that so many of your colleagues are still so supportive of Johnson? If You know, you have heaped absolutely d- damnation upon uh, Boris Johnson and what he's done for the country and for the party. Why does he still have supporters?
6: I- I'm afraid that some people are delusional. Uh, it applies clearly to some of my former colleagues in the House of Commons and some who came in in 2019. And it also applies to his, a, a, a section of the membership of the Conservative Party. But I have to say, I've got a background as a lawyer and I've seen the extraordinary way in which individuals who are essentially fraudsters captivate and charm their public. And even when they know that they're being essentially conned, they go back for more. It's mm. a remarkable phenomenon in human affairs, but I'm afraid it's very damaging for our country.
2: Is there not some blame, though, to be – I mean, it's so personality-driven. I mean, basically what we're saying is that we are at the mercy of, uh, you know, as you've described effectively, the charlatan of Johnson. We've got the same ministerial code, the same issue with the ethics advisor to government, you know, being directly answerable to the prime minister, the same civil servants unable to whistleblow. So it's just basically down to the personality of the prime minister.
6: That's correct. In our system, the prime minister, uh, as almost the alter ego of the monarch uh, in our unwritten constitution and the head of the executive, wields very considerable power and is answerable ultimately to nobody except the House of Commons, who can topple him, uh, and uh, to a very lesser extent, uh, the monarch himself, but only in, in absolutely extreme circumstances. So uh, it is very dependent on standards being maintained, which is why today's episode is not just a piece of political theatre with Johnson. It does really matter because the committee committee has got, obviously, to listen to what Johnson says, but it's got to uphold the standards that are expected in our unwritten constitution of the way prime ministers deal with the House of Commons and are honest uh, in the statements they make to it. But you're right. Um, it is personality driven. And Rishi Sunak is clearly a very different person from Johnson or from, uh, mm. a- a- And in those circumstances, mm-hmm. I have much greater confidence. Now, you could make an argument that there's a need for reform in this area. And I think there could be more reform. You could have a situation, for example, where the, uh, the prime minister's ethics advisor is, in fact, answerable to the House of Commons and therefore has greater independence in terms of providing a watching brief over standards of behaviour within government. But I'm not sure that anybody is going to do that anytime soon. And so we are dependent on, on the political parties choosing prime ministers at the end of the day, uh, and who have voted in at general elections, um, who are going to behave in a responsible and proper fashion.
1: Dominic, the, party, the Conservative Party has a majority of 66. There is quite a high probability that, that more than 30-odd Conservatives will vote against Rishi Sunak's Northern Ireland deal. What does that mean for, for the Prime Minister?
6: It would obviously be better for him uh, if they uh, were more sensible and changed their mind. But I'm not sure it's going to do him... It's some immense damage, it's clearly going to go through because the opposition are behaving responsibly and and are going to support him. Doubtless, if a situation were to arise where he lost his majority from conservative MPs over this, so that uh, the number of rebels exceeds the majority, um, it will make a headline. But it seems to me that this group uh, who are going to rebel are increasingly marginalised because they're utterly out of step with public opinion, And they seem to be pursuing an obsession around Brexit, which I think the vast majority of the population has now abandoned. So for those reasons, I think in a funny way that if Sunak faces them down and is seen to have faced them down, what are they going to do afterwards? Are they going to move a vote of no confidence in Sunak's government? No, they're clearly not going to do that. So in those circumstances, they would have been shown to actually be rather powerless. So I think you will get through this perfectly well.
2: Dominic Grieve, their former Conservative Attorney General, speaking to us. That's it from us for today. If you like the programme, subscribe, give it five stars so that other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify
0: or wherever you listen.
1: This episode was produced by James Walcock and our audio engineer was Ful Hussain. I'm Ewan Potts.
0: I'm Lizzie Burden and we'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg.
1: Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London.
2: From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the
6: promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies, from big tech to startups, will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang.